0: Hello and welcome back to Field Notes from the Spiritual Journey podcast. My name is Eden and I'm your host. This is a podcast where we explore how to liberate our true selves, connect to our personal version of the divine in order to create lives that are immensely fulfilling to us. I am so excited about today's episode because today we have on a therapist who specializes in complex trauma recovery. So, I'm just going to say, if you have resonated with anything I've literally ever talked about, especially when it comes to blocks, getting out of our old patterns, shadow work, you're going to absolutely love this episode because we get to hear from a real therapist all about how our attachment issues form, how nervous system dysregulation happens, how our parents are a template for our relationships later on, how we get all these issues that we have. (laughs) I've talked about this before on the podcast, but when I discovered the field of developmental complex trauma, I mean, it was just the most validating thing I've ever experienced because it really talks about how these subtle experiences and ruptures and attachment that we have in childhood cause so many issues with relationships and being regulated later down the road. And I mean, just, I, I, You're going to love this episode. Our guest today is Kina Wolfenstein. Kina is a licensed therapist who currently practices in Texas. She became really interested in trauma and trauma focused therapy after an internship working with survivors of domestic violence. And she went on to specialize in complex PTSD. She started the Complex PTSD Recovery Podcast, which I highly recommend going and listening to, and that is where she educates people about CPTSD and trauma-informed therapy. She also has an Instagram and a TikTok where she shares educational content. Highly recommend. Her podcast is so digestible, so is her content, and you're going to feel so validated and you're going to learn so much. And for those of you who are unfamiliar, you're going to learn about it in this episode, but CPTSD, complex PTSD, really focuses on trauma that is not these acute singular events. So we all are familiar with like capital T trauma, but CPTSD really speaks to more subtle and relational forms of trauma that didn't necessarily happen in response to a singular event, but to maybe a lack of something happening or something chronically happening over time. Kina also in this episode shares forms of therapy and modalities that are really helpful for working with this type of trauma. So stay tuned for that at the end. All right. I hope you enjoyed this episode and I will see you on the other side. Hi, how are you? Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm excited. I'm so excited to have you. I have so many questions. I have a whole list here. Um, But before we dive in, so you are an LMSW. You have a podcast all about complex trauma recovery, which I feel like is relatively new on this scene of like Mm -hmm. trauma recovery. I'm just curious personally, how did you get into this field?
1: Yeah, so I guess there's a a few answers. Um, I started off pursuing a social work degree because I wanted to work with children and families. So my first kind of job in the field was working with um, like at-risk kiddos, zero to three, um, doing like home visits with families. And so I wanted to do that kind of work. I actually was not planning on becoming a therapist. Um, But when I was in graduate school, I was set up for my internship at the Domestic Violence Resource Center in Albuquerque, which is um, a really great nonprofit that provides a bunch of services to people experiencing domestic violence. So I was put in the clinical department there, and that was my first exposure to trauma-focused therapy. And I just loved it, like I just, you know, really enjoyed it and um, became very passionate about specifically kind of understanding like domestic violence, um, but also trauma and trauma focused therapy. So after that, I was like, I think I want to be a therapist. Um, and as I started studying kind of trauma and mental health, I came across this terminology of CPTSD. Um, and I had never heard of it before. And, uh, as soon as I started learning about it, it was also a personal journey for me. Cause I, I myself have CPTSD. I had never, um, like been educated on what that was even after being in therapy for years and years of my life, you know? And so I just got really passionate about kind of understanding like what complex trauma is and how it affects people and kind of being on like my own healing journey. And then just wanting to spread that education and awareness for other people. Cause I figured there are probably a lot of people with CPTSD who have never heard it or been educated about it.
0: Totally. I feel like everyone needs to know about it. It's so... I feel like because it's so subtle and I feel like it's so widespread, I I kind of believe every person to some degree is struggling with some level of like developmental or CPTSD. If there's someone who isn't out there, I really want to meet them because everyone I seem to know <laughs> um seems to go through these things. Okay, so what is complex trauma and what is CPTSD?
1: Yes. So Um, CPTSD, it stands for complex post-traumatic stress disorder. And it is basically a subtype, like a variation of PTSD. Um, It is not in the DSM yet. So it's not something that people are being formally diagnosed with. But it is in the ICD, which is like our uh, international billing code. So there has been plenty of research, there's actually been research around it, dating back to around like the 80s, like the 1980s. Um, And a lot of the research started looking at actually domestic violence and noticing like, oh, you know, people that have been through domestic violence have kind of a different manifestation of trauma than people who maybe were in like a super scary, you know, severe car accident or people that um, had like a near death experience and have PTSD from that. Like there's kind of these different, you know, symptoms that happen when the trauma has been. Really prolonged. So that's the distinction. So CPTSD is from trauma that is prolonged and recurrent and ongoing. So it's going to be from things like long-term childhood abuse, long-term childhood neglect, um, being in an abusive relationship, people that uh, have been like incarcerated often have CPTSD. So it's traumatic experiences where it's not just this one big acute event, right? It's like um, sometimes it can be described as like death by a million paper cuts too. Like it's kind of this compounding effect of all these little things or big things, you know, adding up over time. Um, so that that's what makes it complex, right? It's like the the trauma becomes complex when it's really recurrent and prolonged. And then with CPTSD, there's kind of a few ways that um, it expresses differently based on that complexity. So with, um, P- with CPTSD, you have the same kind of main symptoms that PTSD has, so that would be uh, like hypervigilance, so just not feeling safe, like just this kind of current sense of like threat and lack of safety, um, avoidance of trauma reminders, so avoiding you know certain triggers, um, and then uh, intrusion symptoms, which is basically like re-experiencing the trauma through flashbacks, nightmares, intrusive thoughts, intrusive memories. So with CPTSD, you have those same symptoms, but then you also have these three extra areas of difficulty. Um, So people with CPTSD have uh, attachment issues. So because most of these kinds of complex trauma happen in the context of relationships or families, it really changes um, our, like, attachment systems and the way that we navigate relationships. So people with CPTSD are going to have some kind of insecure attachment pattern, whether it's kind of super anxious attachment, avoidant attachment, um, fearful avoidant, but there's going to be kind of chronic attachment issues. Um, The second cluster is emotional dysregulation. So people with CPTSD experience chronic emotional dysregulation. Um, That can be, you know, chronic anxiety or depression. It can be mood swings. It can be uh, a lot of dissociation and, like, emotional numbness. It can be random, uh, well, not random, but seemingly random kind of attacks of, like, anger and um, grief and just a lot of emotional distress. Um, And then the third category is negative self-concept. So people with CPTSD tend to have a lot of shame, like deep feelings of shame. I'm unworthy. Something is wrong with me. Um, So those kind of three clusters are like the additional symptoms on top of the PTSD symptoms that come with CPTSD.
0: Beautiful. Wow. (laughs) I'm like, yes, great. Um, So yes, in one of your episodes, you Highlighted this core like dichotomy that's at the root of a lot of the CPTSD symptoms, sort of, which is like the connection versus the protection. And this like core issue, which is that we are hardwired to need connection and to need that connection as a safety net to feel safety. But at the same time, because the CPTSD is relational, our brain has been wired to fear connection too. So it's this like simultaneous push pull. Can you talk about that?
1: Yeah. Um, Yeah. I mean, this is really at the heart of like attachment trauma, um, which is that as mammals, um, we are like biologically wired to find safety in relationships. You know, we're, we're not meant to be um, completely autonomous and you know, individual beings without that community and that connection. So um, our nervous systems are wired to be able to feel safe through having these kinds of like meaningful, secure attachments. You know, we really like need that as human beings and as mammals. But with people that have experienced CPTSD, you know, that have experienced like neglect or abuse or significant attachment ruptures, Um, you know, that lifeline, like that, you know, that resource that we need becomes now associated with danger. Um, And so it's kind of like, you know, imagine that you're thirsty and it feels like all the water around you is contaminated, right? It's like this horrible dilemma um, of, you know, needing that connection, needing that security, but it doesn't feel safe. Um, And there's a lot of variation in kind of how those attachment issues can play out. So some people, Kind of avoid relationships altogether because it just feels so unsafe to like be vulnerable, to open up, to risk, you know, being hurt by somebody. Um, other people with CPTSD they do have relationships. They might even like pursue a lot of relationships, but when they're in those attachments, they can't feel secure. So their their nervous systems are constantly tensed, you know, kind of bracing for i'm going to be abandoned, i'm going to be abused, i'm going to be betrayed, you know. um so this hypervigilance really gets like carried into the relationships so then even when you have the attachments you don't get to really benefit from the feelings of like safety and security that those attachments are supposed to, you know, provide. so i think attachment is probably the number one thing that i work on with my cptsd clients. wow.
0: yeah, that's huge. would you be able to give maybe an example or two of what an attachment rupture would look like that someone could experience that would lead to attachment issues later on or some combination of these symptoms.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I guess to understand an attachment rupture, you have to understand like what attachment needs are. um, And specifically looking at childhood, because, you know, our relationships with parents are basically the blueprint. So your whatever your relationship with your parents are becomes the blueprint for this is what it means to be close to people. You know, this is what relationships are. So children need um, to have consistency um, to feel safe. So there needs to be like reliability, dependability, and consistency. Those are like really important for children's attachment development. And that means like, um, I know that my, my caregivers are going to be present. They're going to be warm. You know, they're going to be attuned to me. Like they're going to be noticing me and seeing me, um, and that they're going to be trying to meet my needs. Like my needs are going to be noticed and there's going to be effort to meet my needs. Um, and with that comes a sense of being, like loved and accepted, um, and safe to like feel your different emotions. So, you know, the job of a parent in a secure attachment is basically to provide this container where a child can, you know, figure out their feelings, have their needs met and kind of, it's like this safe container for them to develop in. Um, so there's a lot of ways that that can be (laughs) ruptured. Um, you know, one of them would be, the consistency, the dependability is not there. So um, if a parent, even sometimes like parents with really good intentions, right? Like not, not all parents that end up with kind of traumatized children are like horrible, abusive, neglectful people. Um, Let's say you have a parent who is really trying their best but they have their own kind of unresolved mental health issues um, and they don't have enough support for their own mental health stuff. And so when they get into a bad spot emotionally, they completely withdraw from the from the kid. And so this kid is gonna experience like, yeah, sometimes my mom is there for me and then sometimes she's completely shut down, completely distanced, you know, cannot like interact with me or meet my needs. And so this creates this anxiety in the attachment where you don't know what to expect. Like you don't know kind of if that parent is gonna be there to catch you or to support you. Um, or maybe there's even a lack of consistency with, like the the kindness and the warmth. So parents that are sometimes really kind and loving, and sometimes like really angry and rejecting, um, those can create attachment ruptures. It would be an attachment rupture if um, there's any kind of like emotional neglect. So one thing that I hear a lot is that in order to feel close to my parents, only certain moods were acceptable. So. Um, you know, my, my parents would be really nice to me when I was like happy and polite and grateful and helpful and accommodating. But if I was ever mad or sad or upset, I would be told, you know, to suck it up or you should be grateful or go to your room or whatever. And so in this case, a child learns like, oh, um, You know this attachment is uh contingent on me suppressing you know some of my emotions and kind of modifying you know my personality so this is where a lot of like people pleasing can start right you kind of learn as a kid this is how i have to act to get those like happy warm reactions and this is what leads to me being like rejected or shamed or pushed away um i talked about this a little bit on my podcast too but for children attachment is such a primal need i mean when you think about it like you know babies cannot live without parents right um one of the things that they say in kind of like the early childhood development field is that there is no such thing as just a baby it's a baby and somebody like there's always a somebody that that baby is completely attached to right so because attachment is such a primal need kids will do almost anything to maintain that attachment with their parents. Like to lose your attachment with your parents as a child feels almost life-threatening because of how deep that wiring goes. So kids really pick up on what they need to do to maintain that attachment. Um, And this is where a lot of like shame and self-worth issues come from as well because you, you learn, you know, how to walk on eggshells or avoid certain topics or, In the case of parentification, where a parent is kind of like emotionally immature and they actually require the child to meet their needs instead of the other way around. In that case, the child is learning how to be a caretaker, how to be a people pleaser, how to sacrifice their own needs in order to keep mom happy. So a lot of the things that we struggle with in adult relationships kind of go back to that blueprint and and what you learn to do to kind of maintain those attachments.
0: I mean, it just sounds like it's literally everything. I mean, like, the ways in which that informs how we show up everything about us, basically. And I'm also hearing that this is it's so subtle, like you're saying, it could be as subtle as a parent who is struggling with mental illness, who maybe isn't even noticing that they're withdrawing because they're just overwhelmed. And I just think about previous generations and how like they didn't, this conversation was literally not a concept in anyone's brain. So do you think about that? And what do you think about just the generational implications and how like, cause I can see a whole generation of parents being like, what do you mean? We were, (laughs) we we gave you everything, you know, like, and I'm just thinking of my grandma's generation who are just like, literally don't even know what an emotional need probably is. Like, what are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's kind of amazing. It's one of the things that I definitely hear a lot um, from people is is the kind of, like, each generation kind of improving upon the last. And that's something that I actually feel a lot of hope and optimism about. Because, yes, when you think, you know, three or four generations, like, you know, back, um, the kinds of, like, childhood that was common and, and normal back then and the kinds of, you know, parenting that was considered normal back then, Um we've come a long way, right? Like we've come a long way. And even just in the last few generations, like with kind of intergenerational trauma, when you have these kinds of like cycle breakers who are like, I want to give my kids a better childhood than what I experienced. um, Sometimes it's incremental. So it's not always all at once. And so a lot of like my clients, for example, even though they did have these traumatic childhoods, a lot of them can, can recognize my parents actually gave me a way better childhood than what their parents gave them. And then maybe their parents even gave them a better childhood than what they were given. Um, And so I'm really hopeful that as these discussions around, you know, uh, childhood and attachment and trauma and like gentle parenting and like all the science around that, like as these things kind of become more commonplace, that each generation will be able to just continue to improve upon the last. And so many more people are in therapy now than they were you know, 20 years ago. So I think there's some really positive shifts happening in everyone's just a level of like awareness around like, Oh, when you're raising human beings, (laughs) you know, that's a big deal. And being aware of your own mental health and, and getting support for your own trauma before you become a parent or while you're parenting, you know, so you can show up for your kids. I see so many, um, young parents in therapy too, like people that have babies or toddlers or like little kids and want to really work through their childhood stuff so they can be the best parents for their children. So I think it's great.
0: I literally think about it constantly as because I want to become a parent and I am like, I think about it too much because <laughs> that hyper awareness, it can go the other end. But I also feel like this, there's also no ideal. I'm hearing like, we have to also recognize I'm kind of asking this as a question that like, this is a spectrum because I'm also just in thinking of these scenarios. Do you feel like there's going to be scenarios where just we're not perfect always as parents, or we don't perfectly give that child, like what is the difference between giving like a secure enough attachment and then this ideal of perfection?
1: Yes. It, that's such an important question because absolutely like, I don't think that perfection exists. Um, and I don't think that kids need perfect parents. Like I don't think that kids need to have every single one of their attachment needs met at all times, because also like people are, you know, parents are human. Um, and as we get older, you know, we learn to see our parents as humans and understand, you know, that they were dealing with their own stuff and they couldn't always be perfect. So I definitely see a lot of, parents with that anxiety too of like any time that they mess up or they yell at their kid or they're like oh god I'm gonna give them an attachment disorder and it's like no 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 you're okay like you don't have to be perfect I mean I don't think there's an exact um you know like percentage that I can throw out but I think that um if the majority of the time you know a child feels loved and supported and acknowledged and their needs are met it creates like a buffer so basically you know every time that a child is like affirmed and kind of has that security and has that safe container it creates this like resiliency and like this kind of emotional buffer and so that way when there are misses you know when there are hard moments it's not going to destroy that child's entire attachment base right like an attachment um is something that is really built up over years it's not something that can be like make you know you don't make or break it in like one moment so I think for parents to be um, you know, present, as present as they can be, and then to be able to acknowledge ruptures, I think that's another huge thing because you're, every parent is gonna make mistakes, but um, for children that grew up with parents that could not admit to their mistakes, right? Um, the kids didn't, they weren't allowed to say like, hey, you really hurt my feelings. Like, I really didn't like how you talked to me. Um, and so parents have the chance to model like healthy relationships for their children with that blueprint thing. And if we think about our own adult relationships like romantic relationships friendships those are not perfect either right like there's going to be ruptures there's going to be times that that i mess up that you mess up that like someone gets their feelings hurt but really what creates security has to do with the repair process so it's not about avoiding ruptures it's not about like we're never going to mess up it's really about like what do you do with those mess ups right um and so for a parent to be able to go and acknowledge their child like hey, I've been having a really hard time this month. I probably haven't been very present with you. You know, how are you feeling? Um, or, hey, I'm sorry that I yelled at you earlier. Like I was, you know, feeling activated. It wasn't your fault. You didn't do anything wrong. So that repair process is so, um, so vital. And so I would say that's actually probably healthier than not having any ruptures at all, right? Like we kind of want a model for children that ruptures happen, but we can talk about it. Um, and then that is also a protective factor for trauma. So the the interesting thing is that like when you said earlier that trauma is kind of ubiquitous, I agree. I think that really none of us go through life without experiencing trauma and without experiencing some kind of attachment, ruptures, or wounds. Um, But not everyone develops PTSD or CPTSD. And so what's the difference? Like if we all experience trauma, you know, why is it that some people end up with trauma disorders and some people don't? And one of the things that we've uh, found in the research around that is that there are these protective factors that actually kind of inhibit the development of PTSD or CPTSD. Um, So you could take two kids and they both went through something traumatic whether it was like a you know a loss like a close family member died or maybe they experienced like some sexual abuse or you know it could be something pretty significant if one of those kids has a support system around them where they are believed they are given the space to talk about their feelings you know to talk about what happened they get that support that validation they feel connected to other people through the healing that child has a much lower chance of developing any kind of trauma disorder even though they did experience trauma The kid that will develop CPTSD is the kid that is not believed, is not supported, doesn't have anyone to talk to, you know, isn't given the space to process those feelings, feels isolated and alienated. So I always like to point that out because even your child experiencing some trauma doesn't mean that they're going to end up with CPTSD. Like the way that we um, respond to those hurts makes all the difference. Wow.
0: That's so good. It's so positive. And I remember hearing or reading a definition of trauma. I want to say it was from Peter Levine, but it was like, it trauma is not the event that happens. It's like what happens in the body as a response when things don't necessarily go the best way. And so I love that, that idea because it's like, we are resilient. Ruptures can happen. We are human. Things happen and we're meant to be able to like be in that healthy response to that. And then- yes repair and become more resilient from it.
1: Yes. A hundred percent. I think it's way less intimidating. Like trauma isn't this thing that we have to like avoid at all costs or, or hurt is something that we have to avoid at all costs. It's like, no, what do we do with those things when they happen?
0: So good. Okay. So let's shift into what do we do? <laughs> um, yes. Cause I know people are wondering that. And I think I'm curious your thoughts on this because one of my biggest obstacles in my own healing journey is something I see a lot in my clients is like this judgment against our emotions in general like just this overarching sense that we shouldn't even be emotional and like so much of the shift in the healing and you talked about this on the podcast too of just bringing this new self-compassion approach to it that's so important so can you talk about like the change like how what do we need to change as far as how we start relating to ourselves to start unraveling some of this.
1: Yeah. um, Yeah. I think that that like shame and self-judgment against our emotions is a huge thing. And with trauma survivors, I talk about it where it's like there's these layers where so you have the initial layer, which is basically whatever the trauma response is. So it's like, oh, you know, my hypervigilance or my people pleasing or my chronic anxiety or or whatever it is. And then on top of that, you add these like shame layers of like, and I shouldn't feel that way. And what's wrong with me for feeling that way? And why can't I just get myself to stop feeling that way? And it makes it so much harder to actually heal the root of it because there's all this like shame, you know, self-shaming for feeling the thing. So A lot of what I work with on my clients is um, I work through a coherency viewpoint, which basically uh, means that all of like our problems, all the symptoms that we deal with really started off as adaptive solutions. So I don't view anything as maladaptive. I don't view anything as like unhealthy. I really view everything as like this makes sense considering your experiences, like you adapted actually properly to the experiences that you had in life. And now we just need to um, kind of process what happened and then integrate some like new knowledge, new experiences now that we're in a different place in life. So I do a lot of work with people around um, basically going back and understanding the coherency of whatever they're feeling. So let's say just as an example, that what they're feeling is, um, the hypervigilance in relationships. So it's like, oh, I have a new boyfriend and I, I really want to enjoy the relationship, but I'm just constantly scared that he's going to cheat on me or that he's going to break up with me or that I've done something wrong. And then they're mad at themselves for feeling that way. And so what, what we would do is we would really like, look at that feeling that like hypervigilance. And I might ask a question like, um, I would probably first ask, like, when did that first start for you, right? Like, when when did you first learn to kind of, you know, maintain that level of vigilance in relationships? They would probably connect it back to something from childhood. And then I would ask something along the lines of, what would have happened in your childhood if you were not hypervigilant at all, right? What would have happened in your childhood if you were just totally relaxed, not expecting the worst, you know, just completely um, not bracing for anything bad to happen, And usually the response I get is something along the lines of like, that would have been horrible. Like I would have been completely unprepared. I would have, you know, when those bad things happened, it would have just felt like the rug getting pulled out from under my feet, you know, the floor opening and I'm just like falling into a pit. And so, oh my God. Yeah. Wow. That hypervigilance really protected me. Like if I hadn't been hypervigilant, my childhood would have been 10 times worse, right? Like learning how to always expect the worst kept me safe. Um, And so I do a lot of that kind of work with people, basically understanding like whatever you're struggling with now, let's trace it back. Let's look at how that developed to keep you safe, to protect you in the environment and the family system that you grew up in. And that the same is true for anger. The same is true for dissociation. The same is true for, even things like um like eating disorders or self-harming or pretty much anything you know we can trace it back and we can see and then a lot of the self-compassion work i do is also like inner child work you know so we'll we'll see if we can visualize like okay you started that behavior around age 11 like let's really visualize that 11-year-old version of you and like can we see how much she was doing her best or like you know can we see Um, how like scary that situation was for her, and how she figured out like the best possible way to cope with that. So that's kind of the entrance point into that compassion work for me.
0: Oh, I've just had like chills so many times this conversation, thinking about Mm -hmm. like people. I just think about if the world was talking to themselves this way, how different the entire world would be. And it excites me so much. Thank you for sharing that insight into your process. And I'm just hearing this copious amounts of like validation and copious amounts of understanding and seeking to try and understand that that part of yourself with this just positive regard. And it's so beautiful. In the podcast, you were talking about how one of the symptoms or expressions of CPTSD is emotional flashbacks mm-hmm. um, or something, maybe not those exact words, but that they don't contain a visual so often because with complex trauma, it wasn't this one car accident. Can you talk about that and how those emotional flashbacks manifest and why that's so, as I was listening to this, I was like, wow, this explains so much why it's so it's more complex to unravel because you're remembering this memory of like this whole period of your life. So yeah, can yep. you share about that a little bit?
1: Yes. Yeah, so the, the typical, um, kind of concept of what a flashback is in PTSD is you you kind of think of the movies, like the war movies, right. Where someone gets like a visual flashback and it's like replaying, you know, the, the battle scene in their mind. And so a lot of people with complex PTSD have kind of, um, devalidated their own PTSD and been like, Oh, but I don't have flashbacks. Like I don't have, you know, specific memories that I'm flashing back to. And it's exactly what you said. It's because if you grew up in a house where, you know, five times a week your parents were having huge screaming fights or five times a week there was some kind of violence in the home there isn't one big memory that you're like that's the moment i was traumatized right the the trauma was actually like seeped into your environment it was your whole life it's kind of like um that line you know you can't ask a fish to describe water it's like it's your whole environment your whole reality so The kinds of flashbacks that happen in CPTSD are often these emotional flashbacks, which is basically where, you know, there will be some kind of trigger um, and the trigger is something that maybe just even subconsciously, you know, brings us back to that period of traumatization. And so what we experience is just the overwhelming emotional and somatic responses to that period. So it would be really common during an emotional flashback for someone to feel Um, I, a really common example would be when you feel like criticized or rejected by someone, or maybe if you grew up with someone that is like a, like a rager, like you had a parent that would rage and would kind of, um, oh gosh, there's a phrase for it that I'm forgetting, but like, um, like radiate anger out into the home, like radiate this negative energy. So you become really sensitive to other people's moods. So let's say the trigger is that like your partner is in like a a crappy mood, right? You don't have a specific memory, but you suddenly feel like your heart starts racing and your muscles get tight and you feel like you're getting smaller, like you're almost like shrinking into yourself and there's like a hole in your stomach. And so your nervous system basically gets super activated. You're going into like a, a fight or flight type of response. Um, and then the emotional side is that you might feel like suddenly really child childlike and helpless and small. Like there's this feeling of helplessness or powerlessness that will happen feelings of like shame and embarrassment, um, feelings of like fear and grief. So basically your entire like emotional and somatic system is kind of, you know, sent back in time to that period. And a lot of people that experience this um, feel like they're crazy, right? Like they feel like I overreact. I have these like big, crazy reactions to things that I shouldn't be reacting to. And they don't identify that this is actually a flashback that's happening. Wow yep
0: definitely been there. um so mm-hmm. for you, like what do you see as the first lines of defense? I know you talk about becoming aware of like what your tendency is, like how to notice, okay, I'm in a all of a sudden I'm numbed out. I'm eating snacks, watching TV or all of a sudden I'm scrolling like noticing what that line of defense is, what? what else do you recommend as far as when we notice ourselves in that state, like what is step one to sort of even become aware of it and then maybe start like a de-escalation?
1: Yeah. um, Yeah. I mean, I think um, I want to say that ultimately the goal would be to actually like reprocess that past trauma to the point where you don't have the same amount of flashbacks and triggers. And I always like to say, when I do interviews that like CPTSD is treatable, like this is not a permanent condition. Um, I think trauma is kind of similar to grief in the way that we're never gonna be completely rid of it. Like it's always gonna be part of our story, something that happened to us, something that affects us. But in terms of kind of like your daily functioning, you can totally um, heal to the point where you're not having frequent flashbacks, you're not getting super triggered. Your nervous system is kind of in like a safe, regulated state most of the time so long term you know that's what trauma therapy is is meant for but kind of in the interim you know when those flashbacks and triggers are still happening i think definitely um the somatic awareness is a big thing i work on so learning like what does my body feel like when i feel safe when i feel grounded and then i can really start to notice when i'm getting dysregulated or when my nervous system is going into like a defensive state um if i notice that i am going into a defensive state um then acknowledging it and like stepping away from whatever the situation is to care for myself, because usually when people get into emotional flashbacks, they don't just feel the physical and emotional symptoms. They also kind of um, slide right into the behaviors that would normally be used to mediate those feelings, right? So in the example that like your partner's in a bad mood and it's triggering you, maybe you go immediately into like the people pleasing response, like, oh, what can I do for you? Are you okay? Are you mad at me? Like you go right into that. And really that's not what you need right really what you need is actually to attune to yourself to take care of yourself um same thing if like your you know response is to kind of go into like a rushed you know frenzy and try to fix everything and try to manage everything um so noticing what's happening stepping away to take care of yourself and then uh pete walker who wrote a really great book about CPTSD that I always recommend, Complex PTSD from Surviving to Thriving is the title. He says that emotional flashbacks are actually a really good opportunity for doing some like breathing and processing around that past trauma. Um, So he has this great list online. It's called 13 Steps for Managing Emotional Flashbacks. Totally recommend that everyone look it up. It's like a really nice kind of succinct summary. But, you know, the process kind of looks like Talking yourself through it um, and noticing, like, okay, like what triggered me, you know, what created that that feeling of danger that that came up in my body, and then when you're able to see, like, oh, okay, it was, yeah, it was uh, my partner being in a bad mood because it was really scary for me when my parent would be in a bad mood growing up, and then you can do that self compassion work, right? That validation work, that like, yeah, that was like really hard, you know. Maybe there's some emotions that need to be released, so. Another thing with CPTSD is that whatever emotions came up during that original trauma likely had to be suppressed, right? Like you as a child in a difficult environment did not really have the chance to like be pissed or to grieve or to like really feel your feelings because you just had to be in survival mode. So being able to feel your feelings now and kind of sort them into like that was the past and that was really hard that's a big part of the healing process. So sometimes emotional flashbacks can be a good opportunity for that, right. To, to actually give yourself the time to sit with the feelings and to be like, wow, like I feel really angry when I think about that. Or like, I feel really sad. I need to cry. Um, and kind of to do some actual emotional, like release in those moments. So good.
0: I remember you mentioning how crying can be a really important catharsis. Like when that sort of emotional flashback is already activated that whole, it's almost like that pathway, that pattern is at the surface. It's like able to be kind of processed through where does crying play into that? Cause I was encouraged my clients to cry. I love crying. It's, it's, it's amazing. It's been so healing. Yeah. Can you share about that? Like crying? Yeah.
1: Yeah, I think it's just, I mean, it's, it's catharsis, it's a release. um, But really, I think of it in this framework of like grieving, because the, the grieving process is such a big part of trauma recovery. It's like, Grieving for what happened to you, grieving for um, what you lost, like, you know, the, the loss of a safe childhood or the loss of, you know, like a security, secure relationships, um, grieving for, you know, kind of that like past version of you and what they went through. And so... Uh, that that grieving can be really healing. And grieving is one of the things that dissolves shame, I think. So crying and allowing yourself to like feel sad for yourself and like feel sad about what happened. um, I think that really helps. Like unravel some of the shame, right? Because um, it's just giving yourself permission to be like, yeah, that that was really sad, um, and I'm allowed to like feel those feelings about it. And then just on kind of a more physiological level, it's just like a it's like a pressure valve, you know what I mean? It's like we have to just let the stuff out. There's so much bottling up and suppressing that happens in trauma. In trauma, you almost have to like hold yourself really tight. So they've even found that people with PTSD, CPTSD tend to take more shallow breaths. So like we don't breathe as deeply. We literally will take like shallow breaths. We have this thing called chronic muscle armoring where you just like hold your muscles in this like tight position. Like you're trying to shield yourself all the time. And then all of these emotions get get buried and internalized. And so anything that is just kind of like a, a release, I think can be so cathartic. I also really encourage people to get in touch with anger, um, especially people that grew up like not really being allowed to feel angry and people with a lot of shame. I think anger is like this, um, this really great antidote to shame sometimes where if you give yourself permission to notice that like it wasn't actually your fault. What happens when you accept that it wasn't your fault? You're like, oh, it was someone else's fault. Like, you know, oh, if I didn't cause my parents to abuse me, then like, wow, they, they just fucking abused me. And I didn't, am I allowed to swear on your podcast? I just realized. Oh, yeah. I'm yeah, okay. yeah. <laughs> so when you start to realize like what happened, wasn't my fault. There's a lot of feelings that come from that. And, and the two main ones I think are like rage and grief. And so making room for both of those is is so important. Wow. Yeah. I, oh, I think about this,
0: like as anger and grief being like the first emotions we would have as a kid when something was going wrong, like we'd be angry, we'd be sad, but then those mm-hmm. get repressed. So we then harbor more of this like fear and shamey state. Yes. And I always think that like we're vomiting it back up because we have to like go back and be like, no, actually I would
1: have been angry if I was allowed to be angry, you know? Exactly. Yes. It's like these suppressed emotions. And one of the things that, that I really believe as well about kind of just healing in general is that we are um, like naturally wired to heal and be healthy. Like we have all of the ingredients for healthiness and wellness inside of us. It's these barriers and these kind of blocks that happen um, that prevent us from uh, like kind of fulfilling these natural, like emotional processes. So for example, like what I was talking about earlier with the you know, being able to heal from trauma, if you have the right support, it's like, we're we're actually wired to be pretty resilient, right? Like we're wired to be able to go through these hard experiences. But children have their natural survival instincts and healing instincts suppressed in these traumatic environments. One example would be with the anger, the fight instinct. So like we were built with these survival responses of fight and flight and freeze. And all of them are actually really important tools, you know, that our bodies are meant to have. And so when someone is like crossing our boundaries or treating us poorly, anger is this like natural protective resource that tells us like, you are crossing my boundaries. I am not okay with this. And anger fuels the fight response, which is this like self-protection. It's like, Hey, back off. Like you don't get to treat me that way. But when kids are in an environment where they're, they would be, you know, maybe punished even more for having that fight response, right? They suppress it. And and that's where we see like the fawning, the fawning response. So the people pleasing. Um, so a lot of the times with my clients, especially that are kind of the like people pleasing, fawning, like difficulty with boundaries type of people, we spend a lot of time trying to access that anger. Um, and what I have found is that when that wall finally comes down, there's a lot of anger, like there is a lot of anger that has been built up and blocked for 20 or 30 years that needs to be released.
0: Wow. And I would imagine a lot of boundaries that need to be set too.
1: Because for sure.
0: Yeah, I feel like when we acknowledge our own anger, we then have to do something about it. Like we're then like, oh, now I have to set a boundary or acknowledge that I had this need. Whereas before I could kind of ignore it and be fine, quote unquote, with not having boundaries.
1: Yes. Yeah, totally. Whew,
0: good stuff. Um <laughs> okay so you talk about how simultaneously we do need to you know be doing this reparenting or this work to to rebuild that environment you called it an internal environment of consistency within ourselves but we also have to be in relationship to be healing. So we can't do it all in isolation, but we also maybe don't want to also just like go full blown into a relationship and like do all the healing there. It kind of has to be both. But I think the, you, you talk about these ways we can like s- s- gain these even bite sized pieces of like restoring a healthy attachment. Through it doesn't have to be a partner, it doesn't have to be a parent. Like, can you talk about how we can use our relationships to practice re re-earning that secure attachment?
1: Yes. This is my favorite, my favorite part of this, which is that um, like what's hurt in relationships is healed in relationships. That's like my favorite line. So um when a lot of the wounding has happened in, in like the relational interpersonal context, that's where a lot of the healing is gonna happen too. Um so we need what are called uh, reparative experiences or sometimes they're called like disconfirmations. So basically like things that create a juxtaposition and disconfirm that original emotional learning. So like if I learned you know, that um, the only way to be safe is if I don't set any boundaries, like I now need to learn as an adult that I can set boundaries and the right people will accept them and support them and, and love me, right? Or if I've learned that I'm gonna be rejected when I express vulnerable emotions, then like, I need to actually have an experience, you know, in present time that can disconfirm that for me and show me that like, I I can safely share my vulnerable emotions with people. So yeah, we need safe and healthy relationships to kind of do that, that repairing work. sometimes the first place that a person will find that is with a therapist. So if someone is in a position where they are really isolated, and they really do not have like any relationships that could kind of meet the mark on that safety and security, sometimes therapy is the first place that you really get to experience that. Someone that just offers you, you know, unconditional positive regard and like safety and acceptance. And one of the ideas in kind of relationally focused therapy is that like the relationship between the therapist and the client can then serve as kind of a model or a base for going and finding like safe and healthy relationships in the outside world so sometimes you find it in therapy sometimes it's you know identifying those few people in your life that have shown you that they're pretty safe people and then you can start actually like taking the risk within those relationships. So, you know, maybe you have a couple friends that you really do feel like these people love you. Like they, they have shown themselves to be like safe and consistent people, but because of your own trauma history, you still like, you don't really let them support you. You don't really ask for help. You don't really share your vulnerable emotions. And so maybe these are people that you can start like testing out those new skills with, right. You can maybe even tell a couple of people in your life like hey I really want to work on trusting people more or like I really want to work on letting people support me more like can I practice with you right um, and so looking for these kind of like secure bases in your life and yeah I think a lot of the time it's going to be friends before it's romantic partners because romantic relationships are just infinitely more triggering than friendships so um, those can be like more difficult uh to kind of feel ready for that like healthy secure attachment romantically but yeah definitely starting with a therapist starting with friends starting with any family members that you have a good connection with and looking for opportunities to kind of have these like reparative experiences and then the other thing that's really important is to actually take the time to integrate when you have a disconfirming experience because the funny thing is kind of because of like confirmation bias and trauma We can actually have really beautiful, like secure experiences with people and not really absorb them, right? So you could have a friend that like really loves you and shows up for you and like shows you that you are um, safe and accepted as your authentic self, but you could be so kind of wrapped up in your feelings of like shame and isolation that it doesn't really penetrate or it doesn't really like fully absorb. And so that's something that I work a lot with people work on a lot with people in therapy as well is actually like let's find those examples in your life that are disconfirmations or that are like reparative experiences and then really take the time to like integrate those and absorb those and like uh fully internalize you know what what does that feel like to have this person in your life that doesn't reject you when you're vulnerable or so yeah does that answer your question
0: totally i think that's so beautiful because when we start paying attention i mean i've had these experiences with like peripheral friends who have no idea the impact that they've had on my life but i will actively reflect on these instances where they just went out of their way to like do something for me and that was an experience i'd never had and it's like so healing to my inner yeah. child and it's so beautiful and i i love the idea of taking small risks like okay i've i never voice my needs i'm kind of afraid to like say no And so I just avoid altogether. So I'm going to practice as I'm like meeting this friend group. That's really nice. I'm going to practice saying, you know, I would prefer not to eat at that restaurant. Like it could be
1: something that small, right? Totally. Yep. Tiny little things, tiny little boundaries. Like I'm going to say no to this small thing and just like, oh, it gives me anxiety. But then I notice that like, oh, the response is totally warm and like no one's mad at me. And that helps me absorb like, oh, maybe setting boundaries is okay. And maybe next time I can set like an even bigger boundary, but totally, I, I recommend that all the time to people to even start with like, assert where you want to eat for dinner, assert what movie you want to watch tonight, you know, assert, like, uh, you know, how you want the bed to be made, like even just little things can help us kind of get those new experiences.
0: I love it. And I also feel like this builds that self trust, because in that whole connection, protection dichotomy, you talk about this idea where it's like, we're not going to feel safe to connect if we don't feel safe within our own boundaries too. Like if we don't feel like, okay, well, I'll get up and leave if something's wrong. And I feel like that that also would build that self-trust of like, oh, I speak my I say no when I don't want to do something that's going to help me feel more safe
1: in relationship
0: moving forwards.
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think it's really this like complicated just um duality between like working on your relationship with yourself and that kind of internal environment and then working on the actual interpersonal relationships like healing really happens in in both of those domains and they both really play off of each other so good
0: okay last question before we wrap up can you talk briefly because we don't have that much time about how the inner critic that the way we treat ourselves and how we Model that based off of like what we experienced, so let's say our parents never asked us what we wanted or like saw us as a human with needs. How does that impact the internal environment that we have?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. Um I think in a few ways, I mean, one is that um you know, like I said, the primary parent relationships are the blueprint, and so that doesn't just become the blueprint for relationships with other people, that really does become the blueprint for our relationship with ourselves too. Like, you know, the way you experience those primary attachments growing up becomes the model for like, this is who I am. And this is, you know, this is who I am like in the world and in relationships. And so um, we don't, we're not just born knowing how to care for ourselves in all these ways, right? Like children are not born knowing how to self-soothe. We, we don't have that capacity. We're born only knowing how to co-regulate, which is to be like soothed by a caregiver. And then you learn how to self-soothe like from that co-regulation. So quite literally on a biological level, we learn to treat ourselves, you know, ha- based on how our parents treat us. So like from a parent rocking a baby, comforting a baby, picking up a baby when they cry, eventually that grows into a child that knows how to soothe themselves when they're upset. And an adult that knows how to soothe themselves when they're upset. If you don't get that, if you don't have that comfort, if you don't have anyone soothing you, you physiologically do not develop that like wiring. It can be developed later, so it's not like a lost cause or anything. But we really do um, just kind of develop like in direct parallel with the way that we're nurtured in those like, especially those kind of early childhood development years. So um, neglect becomes the norm, right? Like if you have a parent that doesn't meet your own needs, you might not even know how to recognize your needs. That's another thing we're not born with. You know, we're not born knowing how to really um, identify and express our needs. Like babies, when you think about how little kids are, they just cry and the parent figures out what they need, right? Like they cry and the parent is like, are you hungry? Are you tired? Do you need to be held? Do you need to have your diaper changed? And then kids start to develop the language, you know, for their needs as they get older. But um, knowing how to identify your emotions, like we're we don't have the language for that organically. You need a parent there to to mirror right? so there's this idea of mirroring an attachment, which is that like our our parents, our caregivers are like these mirrors that kind of reflect back to us like who we are and and how to navigate being a human. so a lot of people that were neglected, they might not even really have the language to identify their emotions. It's like I feel this distress but I can't really put a word to it. I don't really know what I'm feeling. I don't really know what I need, you know, so that that's one of the ways is just that there are these like very literal deficits and kind of skills, you know, from not receiving the proper nurturing. Um, And then in terms of the inner critic, I mean, the other thing is that we just very much internalize the way that other people speak to us. And these are like messages that we receive about ourselves. So if you have a parent that, um, you know, is really like ostracizing and critical Um, And always like points out everything that you do wrong, but doesn't ever compliment you. You become accustomed to that. And and that kind of, you know, literal, like external critic becomes internalized. We just like internalize all of that messaging. So people will often reflect on the fact that like I really speak to myself almost in the exact words that like this figure in my life would speak to me, right? Like the, these same words, the same messages, the same tone. Um, If your parent would tell you to, you know, suck it up when you were sad, then you end up telling yourself that same thing, you know, you're sad. And the instinct is to be like, what's wrong with me, you know, get it together. And so all of these things are really just learned through like implicit experience. So no one had to like look at you and tell you, you know, you're a terrible person and you should be really mean to yourself. Whenever you cry, you learn it implicitly by like, wow, every time I cry, I get sent to my room and everyone seems annoyed at me and no one comforts me. So these implicit emotional experiences just become like wired into us. They become kind of automatic emotional associations. um, And that's where a lot of trauma therapy focuses is it's on the implicit emotional learning. It's on these things that, um, they're really almost subconscious. Like the inner critic is, it's almost um, like a a track that plays in the background of the brain, right? It's like, people will describe it as this voice in the back of my head. You'll hear that a lot because that's how deeply rooted it is. It's like this implicit, you know, like absorbed messaging. Um, So bringing that stuff into our like conscious awareness and being able to look at like, where did these messages come from? And how did I learn to view myself this way and to talk to myself this way? Um, Or what did I not learn? You know, did I not learn how to identify my needs or identify my feelings?
0: So good. And I love that idea that it's absorbed, but that it can be changed. And I think that's like such a good, I'm so glad you emphasize that throughout this episode, that this is curable, this is changeable. So for people who have resonated with this, I'd love to hear, you know. Please share with us where they can follow your work. I highly recommend binging your entire podcast; like it's so digestible. Um, but when looking for therapy, because I know a lot of people won't be able to work with you, you're licensed in Texas and your waitlist is full. But people should still get on it. What type of therapy should they be looking for? Because I think people get confused with this.
1: Yes. Yeah. And it's hard to because, you know, different kinds of therapy do work for different people. So it's not a one size fits all. I never want to make it seem like it is a one size fits all. But if you have resonated with kind of what I'm talking about in this episode, I can I can share like the kinds of therapy that I use and that I have found to be effective. So um I look for anything that is bottom up instead of top down. So, you know, what that means is that like top-down therapy is very cognitively focused. So this is like your your CBT, the cognitive behavioral therapy. This is where you put a lot of focus on your thought patterns. And it's kind of like, oh, if you change the way you think, it's going to change the way that you feel, the way that you behave. Um, Bottom-up therapy starts by targeting um, kind of the somatic, like the physiological responses and the deep emotional responses. And so you start from the bottom and then you work up to the thoughts. So the idea is like, oh, if you can actually work on the emotions and work on the body, the thoughts will change from that. Um, And I find that is way more accurate, way more helpful with trauma. So some bottom-up therapies would be anything somatic. So I love somatic experiencing. Any kind of clinician that uses somatic practices in their work I think is going to be really effective for trauma because so much of trauma is stored in our physiological responses. So anything somatic. Um, EMDR, a lot of people have had a lot of success with EMDR. I don't personally do EMDR, but I know that that is one that's helpful for a lot of people. Um, I look for emotion-focused, so anything that's really going to help people, like, get in touch with their emotions and kind of process and express their emotions. Um, and then I, I look for experiential therapy, which just means that these are kinds of therapy that actually kind of bring you into, like, the experience um, in kind of a more integrative way instead of just talking about the experience. And so some examples would be, um, coherence therapy. I'm really, I'm getting certified in coherence therapy right now. I love it. It is so cool. I recommend looking into, um, it's called memory reconsolidation. It's like this process for, um, kind of altering like implicit traumatic memories. Uh, and it's using coherence therapy and a number of other modalities. So I recommend that. I'm a fan of um, ISS, which is internal family systems. I think that can be really powerful. Um, but yeah, there, there's a number of different modalities that can kind of use these techniques. But the, the important thing is for it to be kind of bottom up, And for it to have that like somatic and emotional piece really centered. Um, And then attachment focus. So I always would look for a therapist that has like a lot of knowledge and and understanding around attachment. Thank you so
0: much for that insight. That's such a good resource. I'm going to link all these things and that's wonderful. And then, yeah, share with us, how can people get on your wait list? We'll put all the links for these things and where else can they follow your work?
1: Okay. (laughs) So, um, yes, you can follow me on TikTok, which is a CPTSD therapist. You can follow me on Instagram, which is complex trauma recovery pod. Um, and then my practice that I work at is called strong group psychotherapy. It's located in Austin, Texas. Um, so you can look at that practice. You can also find me on psychology today. Um, and you can contact me via psychology today or my practice website. And yeah, I do have a, waitlist. Um, but it's not full, just my, my caseload is full right now. So I can add anyone to the waitlist that lives in Texas. Um, and, and then if people are interested in, uh, like doing professional consultations or interviews or want to reach out to me for anything else, you can also email me at complex trauma recovery pod at gmail.com. Um, and then my podcast, is called Complex Trauma Recovery. And it's on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, all the podcast places.
0: Amazing. It's so good. Thank you so much for this time. This has been so valuable and it means the world. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. I love talking about this stuff. So anytime.